This podcast is a presentation of UCTV.TV, University of California Television. Like what you learn? Help others discover UCTV podcasts by leaving a comment or rating in iTunes. So my lab is interested in the development of new high-speed volumetric imaging techniques with the goal of understanding how neural circuits um, give rise to behavior. And you have heard already a number of fascinating talks today, today and also the motivations for why we need these tools. For us, I just want to briefly summarize also why from a biological point of view uh, we are developing these techniques. And this is basically comes down to what has been already mentioned previously, which um, is related to the de- incredible density of the interconnectedness of the neurons in the brain. So if we think about the human brain that has about 80 billion neurons and we take out two neurons randomly, they are only connected over two or three synapses. And uh, so this alone shows us that in many cases, information may be not represented by the individual elements of the systems, but rather by, by states of the, of the network. And therefore, we intrinsically need to move forward and record uh, from many neurons at the same time. So these are some of the questions that we are interested in approaching by developing these technologies in the lab. And you have heard also about um, parallel efforts that are going on um, on the level of connectomics uh, that are related to understanding the wiring diagram or or the connectivity. But um, I think Connectom will not be answering us uh, um, these questions. Uh, It may be... So the Connectom may be putting us a constraint on how we could approach this question, but it will be not sufficient to answer them. And the best example comes from C. elegans that we also heard about. The C. elegans had only 300 neurons. The Connectom is mapped out already for over 30 years. Nevertheless, we still cannot predict the behavior of C. elegans. So that is really the motivation for us, why we want to move forward and develop, uh, move towards functional maps of neural circuits Uh, And in particular, what is here necessary is we need to have tools that allow us to do two things. On one hand, we want to be able to do stimulation of defined spatial temporal patterns of activity on a genetically identical um, set of neurons and combine that with a parallel and unbiased recording from an entire population while we are doing that. And you can also think about if you had these tools, how we would be going conceptually about approaching some of these questions. And what we would like to do is we would like to use methods from Uh, machine learning, graph theory, and information theory to approach them. So in this example, you can imagine that the first set of tools could allow us to position ourselves in each of these individual states of this abstract space that is the state space. And then by having the ability to observe how these points evolve to other points, we could build over time transition probability maps that could inform us um, about the pro- probability of the transition, transitions and use them to, in, to inform uh, models that could be generative of the dynamics of the brain. And ultimately, what we are dis- interested in is to work towards the discovery of the underlying algorithms. Uh, so about um, seven, eight years ago, when we started with this um, project, we first uh, focused on the third, first topic and developed basically based on optogenetics Uh, methods that allow us to sculpt the distribution of light and um, thereby stimulate individual neurons at high speed and resolution. And uh, moreover, the last uh, few years, we have focused on the second topic, which is the parallel on unbiased recording. And here we have developed a portfolio of different techniques that are addressing this question from the level of small organisms on the the C. elegans, and more recently, in the more scattering brain of um, 
uh, rodents, and um, we are moving also to, towards the primate imaging. So, and today I would like to basically to give you a vignette of uh, some of the techniques that we have developed, mainly around the idea of light sculpting that has found application both in the smaller semi-transparent uh, C. elegans, but as I will show you also um, could be a useful th uh, technique for uh, imaging the rodent brain. So I would like to introduce the basic idea of light sculpting, and those of you who are familiar with optics and uh, microscopy techniques uh, quickly realize that in any kind of microscope, basically, the two parameters that are describing the confinement of the light in our sample are given by, the, uh, by two things. One is the spot size of a beam that we choose to um, illuminate the sample with, and the other one is the depth of field or the axial confinement. And you have heard this in also in many talks. And with the problems that we are facing in, in, in some sense is the fact that these two parameters that are fundamentally defining the properties of light in the, in the sample are both given by the wavelength of light, lambda, and the numerical aperture of the optics, which is basically the ratio between the, the diameter of the lens and the focal length. So as, as such, the two are inherently coupled. And so whenever we choose our... Um, spot size to be a certain size, we inevitably end up with a certain axial confinement or, uh, or depth of field. And what we are basically asking is how can we go beyond that and come up with a technique that can allow us to create more arbitrary distributions of light within the sample. Now, as you have heard, the lambda is the, basically the wavelength of light. So if we set also our wavelength fix, then there is no way around this uh, coupling. So we will end up inevitably for every given spot size with a given depth of field. However, if we go to a different situation, you have heard also about two-photon microscopy. And in two-photon microscopy, this is typically based on the use of uh, femtosecond pulses of light. And um, due to the so-called un uh, uncertainty relationship, uh, which says that if you choose the time very short, you end up with um, an uncertainty in energy, which translates in an uncertainty into colors, means that if we use femtosecond pulses, we are no longer dealing with a set sing single wavelength, but with a spectrum. And so you can see at least that by e exploiting that spectrum effectively, this constraint that I was mentioning before could be relaxed. And so one way how this can be done has been uh, shown to be um, through the technique of so-called temporal focusing that I would like to introduce to you uh, briefly. So the basic idea is we use these femtosecond uh, pulses of light. We send them to a dispersive element, for instance, a grating. And what the grating does is it sends the different spectral component within the pulse along different spatial directions. So as the pulse is propagating away from the grating, the peak intensity drops off as a function of propagation, and this leads basically to a dilution of the photons in space, so a pulse like that is not very effective in exciting the molecules. So we reduce the two-photon excitation probability as a function of propagation. Now we reverse the process by using a telescope that is consisting of a lens and our microscope objective. And what that telescope does is it forms an image here on this, in the sample uh, of our originally short pulse on the grating. So what that means is that there will be only one plane in the axial location where all these spectral components will be again co-localized both in time and space, leading to this high uh, energetic pulse that is very effective in exciting the molecules. But outside of that region, we are basically dealing with a dispersed pulse, and such pulses are not very effective in exciting the molecules. 
So what we can achieve in this way, we can achieve the localization of excitation in the axial direction by manipulating the uh, spectral properties of the pulse uh, and thereby basically decouple it from the lateral confinement and have the, reserve the lateral confinement to basically choose the spot size that we are interested in in the sample by basically illuminating the pulse on the grating with a different size. Just to draw the comparison to the standard two-photon microscope that you are more familiar with, in the standard two-photon microscope, both the localization laterally and axially are, are, um, are generated by the focusing in space, and in the temporal focusing, the axial localization is generated by manipulating the spectral properties of the pulse, and laterally we can focus in space. So going to the problem of large-scale volumetric imaging, we thought instead of now exciting each of the neurons at, 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 at once and scanning it, we could use that to create a sheet of light, similar to Philips light sheet microscopy. In this case, we can create a sheet that is spanning over about 75 microns, but still be actually confined to about two microns. So the main difference here is that it's a two-photon excitation, and it doesn't require the geometry that you saw before, where you have the two objectives uh, being orthogonal to each other. So the idea was exciting a, a, a field of view of that size, and then scanning that sheet axially quickly to capture the volume. And we wanted to use GCAMP again as our um, calcium indicator. And the reason why we chose that size was that we were interested in looking at the um, brain of C. elegans that is roughly uh, would fit in that, in that volume. So now if you want to do two-photon excitation of a sheet of that size, this doesn't work with the conventional laser sources that people have been using for two-photon scanning microscopy. You need significantly higher pulse energies. And for that, we use a so-called regenerative amplifier that is shown here. Basically, it is seeded by a conventional two-photon laser. And it, what it does, it creates significantly higher pulse energies, but at the lower repetition rates. And uh, so the pulses are now sent to the grating. And here you have the temporally focused, uh, focusing setup that I was describing. And the fluorescence is now excited here and then collected, separated by a dichroic, and sent to a detector that we have designed based on a so-called image intensifier and a, and a camera. So overall, you can see that we can create now a sheet that is about 75 microns and being actually confined to two. And what this allows us basically is to go at very high speeds, uh, about 200 frames per second, or video rate uh, volumetric imaging. So as I said earlier, we wanted to apply that to the, to the brain of C. elegans. And the neurons we wanted to record from here are located in so-called head ganglion that are shown here. And this was done in a collaboration with my former colleague, Manuel Zimmer, who is at, at IMP. So when we first expressed GCAMP into all of these head uh, ganglion neurons, we saw that due to the uh, uh, incredible density of the uh, neurons and of the small size, uh, we couldn't distinguish them individually. Uh, so we came up with the idea of using a nuclear localized version of GCAMP. Basically, it has a nuclear localization sequence that drove the expression of GCAMP into the nuclei, and then we could nicely see that the neurons were localized uh, in all dimensions. So we could apply our uh, wide field imaging technique. And what I'm showing you here is now a, a three-dimensional maximal intensity projection of about 120 neurons of the worm and during spontaneous activity. So you see significant spontaneous activity. Certain neurons are correlated. Others are anti-correlated to each other. 
And this is all recorded at about um, uh, five volumes per second. Uh, our method can go um, about four or five times faster, but, ca- but uh, neurons in C. elegans have intrinsically ro- low responding or slow responding uh, time scales, so we chose to uh, image them at the lower frame rates. Now, if you have such a high dimensional um, system and you want to make sense out of it, so one, one simple way of asking what are these neurons telling us and what are they doing is to do dimensionality reduction. And one simple way of doing it to, is to uh, do principal component analysis, which is like asking what are the most components in this system that it can rise to the variance that we are observing here. So when we do PC, uh, P, uh, PCA, uh, we observe that the, about 70% of the variance of this data was explainable by the first three principal components that are now shown here. And here you see the color is now encoding for the time. Now, again, uh, the great advantage of C. elegance comes from the fact that we have the connectome, so we can map these principal components back to the known connectome. And what we found was that the first principal components was basically an antagonism between different interneurons and head motor neurons. Uh, the second principal component was a class of head motor neurons. And the third principal component uh, was antagonism between, between different head motor neurons. And we could now uh, display these principal components in the phase space. And what we observed was an interesting behavior which showed um, sort of a trajectory that was reproducible and also was characterized by regions that resembled attractors, which you can see now in this movie much better as the states of the brain are evolving. You see that the brain seemed to be spending time in one of these attractors. And then it's switching back and going to another attractor, coming back again, and going on and on and so on. So this was an interesting observation, and now we have uh, increasing evidence, uh, mainly from the lab of Manuel, who has been looking also in these animals during free behavior, and what we know is these, these attractors correspond now to unique motor programs, such as forward crawling, backward crawling, left and right movement, and so on. So it seems that during spontaneous activity, the brain is randomly switching between these possible motor programs. And in the presence of the stimulus, this landscape could be tilted such that the probability of one of them being assumed over the other could be modulated. So we are following up on this uh, biologically and uh, interested in now developing techniques that allow us to observe this behavior during freely free uh, navigation as the animal is uh, making left-right type of decisions and see what, do we, what kind of um, things can we observe here. So w- while working on this, we have been also trying to push these methods further. And I would like to give you uh, uh, an overview of another technique, and this is related to how can we extend these techniques into the mouse brain and look at the larger scale in scattering tissue. So since you are, many of you are familiar with um, conventional two-photon scanning microscopy, I just want to briefly take a moment and outline the limitations, the fundamental limitations of two-photon microscopy. Let's assume that we, would have, we were interested in recording from a volume that is about 500 micron cube. And this would be about the size of our diffraction-limited spot. And we want to record from this volume at about 5 hertz. Now, if we do the simple math, this, these are 500 million voxels, and recording them at 5 hertz requires a 2.5 uh, gigahertz acquisition rate. And therefore, if we want to at least excite each pixel with one pulse, we would need to have a laser that runs at that repetition rate. 
So lasers are conventionally not available at this rate, but even if they would be, we are facing another problem that is that at each individual voxel we will be spending only 0.4 nanoseconds, which is about an order of magnitude shorter than the fluorescence lifetime. It means we will not be able to collect any fluorescence out of these um, voxels. So one conceptual solution that we need to we could imply, employ here is to minimize the spatial resolution or the sampling rate um, to, the, to the limit of the structure of interest. So if we are interested, for instance, in recording from individual cell bodies or from individual neurons, this resolution in some way may be too good, and we are paying the price for that uh, by having a reduced uh, volumetric acquisition rate. So the question becomes, in some way, how can we relax the spatial resolution in a meaningful manner? So um, cortical neurons are on the order of about 10 to 15 microns, and this is the size of the point spit function. And in some ways, people are mainly using that, at least for these kinds of imaging, because they are mainly interested in the axial sectioning capability. So we could, in principle, relax the spatial resolution laterally by, for instance, on the filling the microscope objective. But if we do that, then we will send, end up with a beam that is going actually about 70 microns uh, for the reasons I mentioned before. So what we really want is to be able to, have, to sculpt an isotropically, um, isotropically uh, sculpted point spit function laterally and axially. And, so, and thereby we would also need to be able to decouple again the lateral from the axial confinement. And this is again where light sculpting comes in. So the idea here is now instead of sculpting our point spit function to be a large sheet, as I was showing you before, in this case we, would, we, we sculpt it to be a, an isotropically shaped 5 micron sphere, which shown here, and then we can scan this by various methods, uh, this is in conventional way, laterally and actually to um, cover the volume. So going back to the example that I, I showed you, so the 1 million pixels are now translating uh, at, uh, acquired at 5 hertz to about 5 megahertz uh, uh, acquisition rate, and which is uh, more realistically possible with, uh, with laser technology. And also we get a much higher uh, pixel dwell time at each of them, so we can collect significantly more fluorescence. So nevertheless, if you look at the, at the size of this point spit function, it's still 130 times larger than the conventional diffraction limited point spit function. So um, lasers that were developed for that um, excitation wouldn't work here because they lack, again, the sufficient uh, laser pulse energies. So we built a laser in our own lab uh, that was running at about 4.1 megahertz and delivered 0.5 microjoule pulses that are enough to excite these sized point spit functions, and this was integrated into a scanned version of the temporal focusing setup, which is consisting basically of mirrors and uh, that are then uh, scanning the beam that is illuminating the grating, and the grating together with the uh, um, lens and the objective is performing the temporal focusing, and we are scanning it up and down with an objective, uh, piezo. So we collect now into fluorescence instead of on camera from each of these point spit function on a PMT, and the acquisition is also synchronized with the excitation. So we are running in the, in the domain that we have in one pulse per pixel only. So this is just an uh, impression of the home-built laser and its integration to the uh, scan temporal focusing microscope. 
Next, we were interested in recording the activity from a, a in vivo in the mouse brain. So we used mice in, uh, where we expressed a GCAMP in the motor cortical areas and in the PPC while they were awake and were running. So with this, we can now go deep and look at the layer 2-3 neurons and record from them, as you can see here, at about 200 microns depth uh, from about 110 neurons or so. We can go also deeper to layer 5 neurons at about 470 microns, record from a similar number of neurons. And what is, what is important here now to realize is we are now looking at a field of view that is about 500 by 500 and can capture that at 160 hertz. So this is way too fast for a single plane uh, given the slow response time of calcium. So what we could do is to use the time instead and look at two planes, for instance, at the same time which is now shown here, one at 150, the other one at 350 microns recorded simultaneously. Or going back to the example that I was outlining, we can now go here and record from a volume that is now about 500 micron cubed, encompassing about 4,000 neurons, and record all of that at about 3 hertz volumetric rate. So here you start also to see the this layered structure of the cortex, the layer 2, 3 neurons, and the layer 4 neurons. Uh, that uh, try to uh, that seem to coming out here, and one of the things that we are now um, collaborating with with other labs um, is trying to understand basically how the cortex performs computation. So we know that computation arises from uh, complicated interactions between different layers of the uh, cortical neurons, but how that is exactly done is is not uh, very clear. So just to show you what. We can also observe if we do some simple data analysis, this is basically looking at the top 0.1% cross-correlations within a given time window. What we observe are also interesting functional connectivities or, or networks that are forming transiently and also then changing over time. Uh, here, the strength of these lines are indicating the degree of the correlation. So one could look at these things in principle and ask how do they change under different behavioral states um, in, 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 on the diseased states, um, and so on. So I just want to briefly summarize. So you, we saw that this idea of light sculpting is possible by decoupling the lateral from the axial parameters of the beam. And this allows us in, in the wide field configuration uh, is useful for recording at high speed in semi-transparent organisms like C. elegans. And in combination with, with scanning, it can be a method that allows us to record uh, on the single cell resolution from a large um, uh, number of neurons in the scattering brain. Finally, I just want to thank the people in the lab who have been uh, involved in doing the work and our collaborators as well as our funding sources. Thank you. You've been listening to a podcast by University of California Television. For more information about this program or UCTV, visit us online at uctv.tv.